I love that song because of its wonderful harmony. There are four separate parts singing different words and different notes, and yet at the same time, it sounds so beautiful. One of the things I love about Northside's 600-member choir that we have, there is something so pure and beautiful and sweet, not just to the ear, but to the soul, in what we call harmony. And that's what we're going to talk about today in our continuing series on one another. Harmony is beautiful, especially when we talk about in the singing world, we understand it's not just about one voice, but about all the voices blending together. I've been around Northside long enough to know that we have some great individual voices. We have some people who really know how to bring it. They know they've got the ability musically, they've got the ear for it, and they have that natural musical ability. And I also know there's people more like myself, not quite given that natural gift. But it, you see, when we come together to worship, sometimes churches, you know, they just have their A-list singers. They just have their top performers. You don't even really need to participate because it's their time to shine. But in worship, we have all of the voices, our A-list, and somewhere near the Toby level, blended together as one. And to me, that's a beautiful, wonderful design of God's church, and it gives us a lesson on Harmony. Harmony sounds beautiful, but making harmony is not easy. Making harmony takes work. And so that's what we're going to think about today. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12 for our anchor verse as we talk about living in harmony. Hearing harmony is beautiful, but living in harmony is hard. Our Northside singers, if you've ever been to a funeral or wedding here in Northside at our building, uh, I've never done one or been a part of one or even just been in the audience where I didn't just see somebody do the crooked neck. Okay? And that is the, the, the funeral starts or the wedding begins and they hear a blending of voices that they've never heard before. They hear a cappella music done excellently. And they do this thing because they're looking for the source of it. And they look up back to the loft, and they look for all of those individual voices. What they're hearing is not individuals, they're hearing a group. Now, the Northside singers have to work hard to make harmony. Doesn't just happen, does it, Karen? It it takes practice, it takes work to blend the voices because it's not about one rock star voice, it's about all the parts singing as one. And that's important. Romans chapter 12, verse 16, hopefully you're there. If you don't know where Romans 12 is, you should be at page 1216. Easy way to remember Romans 12, 16. The scripture written by the Apostle Paul and inspired by the Spirit says this, 
live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. God's word shows us how to have holy harmony within the body of Christ. So we're going to jump in today and get super practical because I think harmony is lived out in the practical. First of all, practical harmony requires something called empathy. And if you're looking in Romans 12, I want you to go up just one verse and look at verse 15. It says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Harmony, in order to happen, requires empathy. If you're on a Northside Singers and you're a part of that group and you're like, man, I just can't wait to show off my voice, you know? If Charles Gardner had that attitude, that would not be the right attitude for the Northside Singers. But that's not the attitude he goes in with it. Okay? He, he understands it's a harmonization. So to do that, Charles and all the other singers have to be mindful of the other parts, have to be mindful of, of the other voices involved. And in the body, we call this empathy. Uh, it's not a scriptural quote, but it's a good one. The quote goes like this, how we walk with the broken speaks louder than how we sit with the great. How we walk with the broken speaks louder than how we sit with the great. We understand that harmony requires empathy. Now, to a scriptural basis, which is where we should get the basis for everything we teach, for Roman, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's just one book over from Romans, and Paul makes a really cool analogy when talking about the church. He doesn't talk about the church as a building or a location, he talks about the church in terms of a body. All of the parts together working as one, and yet all of the parts are different. He says, Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, Just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of one body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Paul says there's one body, and you all are, though you're different, you're a part of that one body. Now look, look at verse 26 of the same chapter, and speaking to this point on empathy, Paul writes this. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And he he emphasized the point, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. See, sympathy is different than empathy. We need to understand that because a lot of times, especially in the religious world, it's easy to sympathize, but we don't want to take the time or put forth the effort to have empathy, and that's a lot harder. Paul calls us to empathy, which is more than sympathy. If one member suffers, everyone feels the suffering. If one part rejoices, every part rejoices with that one member. Sympathy is different than 
empathy. So let me give you a, it's easier to visualize than explain. So let me give you an example that happened this week. Monday evening, Elizabeth Bruce's home caught fire. Okay, everyone was safe. Thank God for that. And, and the damage, though, was significant. Now, if you're a member at Northside, you saw that go out on the prayer tree. You probably saw a few things on Facebook. Maybe you saw a Realm post or something. Um, and in that moment, you had a choice between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy says, oh, man, that's a rough situation. I'm so sorry that you're going through that. I feel badly for you. But sympathy stops short. Sympathy is just about feeling with someone, but it stops right there. Empathy says, I'm here with you. I'm walking with you through this. I'm here for you. I can do something. Even if I can't do something, I will just be present. And so folks like John Burleigh and Janice Hagler and Abby Griffith and Stacey Harrington and many others showed empathy yesterday. Okay? Showing empathy is, is going beyond just showing sympathy. It, it's popular in our world to kind of emote, I feel with you. You even hear, hear the phrase, I feel that. I feel like. But Scripture calls us to go beyond sympathy into empathy. And that's harder to do. That, that requires you to get your hands dirty. It requires you to take time. Sometimes it requires you to take investment. Okay? Empathy is different than sympathy. I think Northside is really good at showing empathy, so this is not to browbeat you with it, just a reminder of who we are that call, God has called us, not just as Northside, but really as the church, to be an empathetic people. A people who walk with the broken. A people who sit beside those who are mourning. A people who rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We walk alongside people. It's why things like Wichita Work Camp and going to weddings and being part of a funeral and going to a reception honoring somebody being married 50 years or going to a baby shower or visiting the hospital or, or, or sending, signing up for a meal training for someone who is going through some hard times. Those things are little things, but they are really big things because they show that we're a church that goes beyond sympathy into empathy. I was thinking about this with uh, the little black books that you guys actually, they're, they're, they're not really little, but if you're sitting near a little black book, would you hold it up for a second? This is audience participation time. If you're near a little black book, now you think about it, we've been doing little black books, the welcome books, a long time. You can put them back down now. And, and, and so now we're in on autopilot. Oh yeah, pass the book, sign it, pass the book, sign it, pass the book, sign it. Wait a second. We miss an opportunity for empathy. Because there's, there's guests who are here, first time, second time, third time. They're waiting for somebody. I mean, you remember how it felt when you were here at Northside for the first time? When you didn't know somebody already? When you weren't connected already? You remember how a little bit overwhelming that is? When that black book came by, did you just worry about writing your name in there? Or did you look for the, the other guests' names? Did you look around? 
Did you say, who are the people that I don't know? Oh, I can't do that. I would just embarrass. I would introduce myself to somebody who's been here for 25 years. Okay, good. It's, it's time for you to make an introduction. <laughs> Empathy goes beyond sympathy. Empathy is harder, requires getting your hands dirty, but to have harmony, you've got to have empathy to make it happen. Second, practical harmony walks humbly. We'll go back to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 16, this is our anchor verse. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. One translation says arrogant. But associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Harmony requires humility. Harmony may mean that you walk with those that you rather not walk with. Think of some examples from Scripture. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Was that received well? Nah, he was, he was hurting his cred. He was lowering his, his social scale. He was climbing down the ladder. He's supposed to climb up, Jesus. You don't need to hang out with those, those people. But Jesus had a walk that was humble. He had lunch with Zacchaeus when he didn't have to do so. He said, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. There was something that drove Jesus. It wasn't just a, I want to, this would be a good thing to do. He, he knew he had to. He talked with a Samaritan woman in the heat of the day at a well, and, and she had specifically, purposely gone there to be left alone. Jesus had great humility to lower himself when it, Jews didn't talk with Samaritans. Men certainly associate and talk to Samaritan women. And there was Jesus walking humbly. Jesus touched the leper. Jesus had a humility to him that we are called to have. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you're following along in Scripture, there's a section in Philippians 2 where we are called to consider Jesus' humility... And apply it to ourselves. Philippians chapter 2, page 1,257, Pew Bible. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or from conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You've got to lower yourself. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, by being found in human form, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." He calls us to Christ's humility. It's more than just looking at what Jesus did. Paul calls us to have the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, and be humble. The challenge is what I call the school lunch syndrome. I don't know. um, I think in school they still have lunch trays. I can remember very clearly in middle school especially 
getting my tray, having it full of food. And there's that moment when you leave the line and you turn around and you do the scan. With all the anxiety of a middle school student, you're looking across all the tables and you're asking yourself the question, where do I sit? Who do I fit with? Who do I connect to? Selfishly, fleshly, there's also a, a process of elimination. I can't, there's that lonely kid over there. I don't sit by that weirdo. There's the, there's the kids I don't associate with. And there's this process we go through in that moment of figuring that you're too good to sit some places, but not good enough to sit in others. I wish I could tell you that the school lunchroom syndrome stops at the school lunchroom. But all throughout our lives, adults face this pressure of what neighborhood do you live in? What car do you drive? What people do you connect to? When you're in a crowd, who do you look for? You, you want the successful ones. You, 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 you want the ones that are well-known. You, you want the people that have power. You want, the people who are, you want to be in the right clique. You want to be with the right group. And Jesus calls us against that. To not to think in that sort of way. It was on the campus of Oklahoma Christian back in the late 90s. Uh, This picture isn't even accurate because they didn't have a clock tower back then. I was a student there. I was a Bible major. And I was getting to know the students on campus. And there was one student in particular. He was just, he was just weird. In class, he'd raise his hand all the time, and he'd ask weird questions of the professors to the point where these Christian professors would visibly get annoyed with his questions. He acted strangely. He had kind of a scraggly beard, and and he would roam campus, not just during the day, but at night. He was usually by himself, and sometimes he would just walk across campus, and you'd see this kid just standing on the sidewalk, just staring up at the sky. If it was at nighttime, he'd be staring at the moon. So this weird kid got the nickname Wolfman. Because it was weird. And everybody, including Bible majors, avoided Wolfman because he's what I would call socially radioactive. Meaning that if, I, if I'm sitting next to Wolfman, people are going to think I'm like Wolfman. Worse, I'm, I'm friends with Wolfman. If I sit with him in the lunchroom in the cafeteria, he's going to ask me all sorts of weird questions. Uh, professors will get annoyed at me because of him. People associate who I am because of who he is. And so it was best to just relegate Wolfman as someone you didn't have to pay attention to. And so not many people did. And everybody called him Wolfman. Except for one kid. His name was Cody Spear. 
Cody Spear, good friend, missionary kid, was really good, was really good about walking humbly with all kinds of people. Everybody loved Cody because Cody loved everybody. The athletes, the cheerleaders, the brainiacs, the Bible majors, the partiers in that one club. I mean, all of them loved Cody because he loved all people well. And I was talking to Cody one day because I like Cody too. And Wolfman walked by. And I just said sort of sarcastically, sort of gossipy, said, Man, what's the deal with that guy Wolfman? And I'll never forget, he just kind of stopped and he looked over. And then he looked at me and he said, You mean Adam? You see, Cody took the time to get to know Wolfman's real name. Which meant that he had to take the time to spend with him. Which meant that there were probably times that Cody and Adam walked together and other people noticed and Cody didn't care. I would imagine there were times that Cody sat by Adam because no one else would. Cody taught me an important lesson that day about walking humbly and walking in love. If we'll do that, harmony, I I know Cody works in the church world, and I have no doubt that every ministry team Cody is a part of, there's harmony, because that's the kind of person that Cody is. And so, in calling us to practical harmony, may we act, walk, humbly. And we never see someone as too good or too little for us to walk with, for us to sit beside, for us to take time to be with. Finally, practical harmony acts mercifully. Romans chapter 12, back to our anchor text. Verse 17 is where we are. Romans chapter 12, 17. Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. My summary of this is very simple. Doing right is always better than being right. I spend a lot of time trying to be right. And I do better to to spend more time trying to do right. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gave a near impossible calling. He says this, Matthew 5.34. He says, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 5.43. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a hard verse to read and even a harder verse to live. But it's a, it's a, it's a verse that calls us to, to do right instead of being right. God could care less if you have everything perfectly worked out, if you have every accurate answer. More so, God pays attention to are we doing what we know to do is right. I was studying theology at a Christian university and I was a, a Bible major. 
But when it came to Wolfman, I wasn't doing what was right. We're called to act mercifully, to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. How is this even possible? Consider the scripture from Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, by Christ's blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. If while we were God's enemies, one translation says, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We are called to be people who love our enemies and pray for them, and that requires to have a merciful nature. God showed us as his enemies, he showed us eternal mercy through his son. Jesus showed us this way uh, in the last chapter of Luke. The last chapter of Luke, verse 23, verse 39 and following, Luke, the good doctor, writes about our spiritual remedy. And look what he says as one of Jesus' very last acts while he was in this world. Verse 39 is where we begin. One of the criminals who were hanged, hang, who hung there, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since we are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. A criminal understood that they were getting justice. They were getting what they deserved. But Christ had done nothing to deserve it. And then he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In that moment, as Jesus is gasping for air, hanging from his, supporting his own body weight, and he's hanging there, and he's beaten to a bloody pulp, and he's suffered in every physical way possible, and he's dying of exposure, and he's hanging between two men, one of which is kind of mocking him, and he has hardly any breath left in his lungs, and every breath that he takes, it hurts. What would you have done? In this situation. How would you have treated that criminal? Jesus acted mercifully. Not just in his life. But even to the very last moment of life. Some people use the thief on the cross as an example of salvation. And that's not an example of salvation of all. It's a wonderful lesson about the mercy, the everlasting mercy of Jesus the Christ. Of how he was merciful and he calls us to be merciful. You can't forgive your enemy. You can't pray for them. You're stuck. You're waiting for them to come apologize. Look at Jesus. Look at what he did. And look at how he responded. He said to him, Now, keep in mind, every single word that Jesus breathes out brings him pain. Truly, 
I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't owe him that. But Jesus gave him that. Because Jesus was a wonderful, merciful Savior. To have mercy, uh, to have harmony requires three things from us. Number one, we got to have empathy, not just sympathy. Number two, we have to practice walking humbly with other people. And number three, we have to act mercifully in all that we do. And look at the example of Jesus in that. The only way to truly have harmony with God is through that man right there. There's no other way to do it. You can't do enough good. You can't have enough good works. You can't do enough good things. You can't give enough money. You, can't, you cannot repay that. We just call that grace. And it only comes through Christ. And to accept the grace, the gift of God, the unmerited favor of God, Christ simply says you have to believe. Peter says you have to repent and be baptized to receive the gift that you cannot So this morning, if you're here and you need to repent, or you need forgiveness, or you need to be freed from your sin, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. We're going to sing a song, and our elders are going to be at the back. If you'd like to be immersed into Christ, if you'd like our elders to pray for you, if you need to publicly repent in some way, know that the Savior was just as merciful today as He was 2,000 years ago hanging on a cross. May we not reject the mercy of Christ. And for those of us who've received it, may we live it out that we might walk in harmony with one another. Harmony sounds beautiful, but living it out is harder to do. And that's why we need Christ Jesus. Whatever your need might be, if you have one, head to the back during this next song and Charles will lead us in this final song.